This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and what follows is Dr. Gregory Schulz and I, fifth conversation on the master metaphors. We're talking about Descartes and his evil demon. I made a mistake in recording the conversation, so if you can bear with the bad quality of the audio, I think you will rejoice in the content of the conversation. So here it is, me and Dr. Schulz talking about Descartes and his evil demon. I'm Pastor Wolfmuller, and I'm with Dr. Gregory Schulz, and we are talking about the nine, oh, the ten master metaphors of philosophy, and we move from uh, today to modern metaphors. We're talking about Descartes' uh, evil demon. Uh, Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the interviews and the conversation. Thanks, Pastor Wolfmiller. I think, therefore, I am here with you. <laughs> well, I doubt, therefore, I am here with you. <laughs> Descartes, uh, he was a philosopher. Um, give us the details on him, when he lived and what he was up to. Well, thanks. Um, I think for, for starters, it's important to peg Descartes on sort of an ongoing timeline of thinking in the West. So if we'd put... The ancient or Greek philosophy period, starting with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, 400 BC, up to the time of Augustine, 400 AD, the fullness of time, um, as Paul calls it in Galatians 4, would be right in the middle of that. But that period would be the ancient or the Greek philosophical period, where the bumper sticker slogan is, let's be reasonable. <laughs> then with Augustine in the year 400, which uh, we were talking about with that metaphor, actually um, came right after the Council of Nicaea and during the the time of the Chalcedonian formula formulation. Um, that's also the start of the medieval period. Let's call that an effort at a marriage between faith and reason. That comes to a screeching and almost inexplicable halt at 1600, where we begin the modern period. So 1600 would be a good round figure on which to peg René Descartes. It's a major sea change, a tectonic shift. I just like to think I've got a lot of words, but I can't find a big enough one to explain how things (laughs) changed for us in the West um, between before 1600 AD and then right after. And we're going to see some of that substantial change um, in the work of René Descartes and his uh, meditations on first philosophy for today. You, you called it a messy divorce between faith and reason. That's right. the language. Uh, before, we talked about um, Aquinas uh, last uh, week, and would that be kind of the fullness of faith and reason? Faith and reason when they're kind of most dancing together most harmoniously? Well, I think that may be a, a really good candidate. I'm also wondering, though I don't... Um, quite have the wherewithal to pull this off with a lot of authority. I'm wondering if you don't end up saying that actually the Reformation was kind of the culmination, which is to say, um, in the Lutheran understanding of the magisterial versus the ministerial uses of reason, uh, the realization that reason is meant not to teach or lord it over Scripture, but to serve uh, the reading and the promulgation of Scripture, I think that might technically and importantly be the high watermark. But um, let's accept that Aquinas certainly is is giving good witness to the power of 
that medieval synthesis of reason and scripture. That certainly is true. Um, all that is out the window with Rene Descartes. He starts, we're looking at his meditation today to get to the, um, to the metaphor of the evil demon. And he starts, he's addressing this to a, a theological faculty. I didn't get all the historical details. You can fill that in. But he says, uh, the, he's talk, he has two topics. Uh, the existence of God and the eternality of the soul. And he starts out talking about how he wants to prove the existence of God and the immortality of the soul apart from theology, apart from faith. Uh, he says that to talk about these things to the infidel, to the unbeliever, when we use faith and scripture to argue them, it's a circular argument. So we have to, we have to have access to these two ideas Apart from faith and only by reason, am I am I understanding the setup right? Well, that's the way the the text reads. I think part of the context, though, is not just that preamble to the six meditations, but it's also the way Descartes carries that out in the six meditations, and then uh, what you might call the the bare bones or the skeletal look at things that we get from his discourse on method, which we're not planning to talk about uh, too much today. So the, hmm, I think the real slip backwards in that preamble is that Descartes is talking about a magisterial use of reason for proving the existence of the God of the Bible, right? So he's, he has in mind and, and says in so many words that, um, the better way to do this is to prove this stuff by natural reason, which is what we used to call natural theology, you know, the effort to talk about God quite apart from biblical revelation. I think this is uh, reminiscent of the way St. Paul talked to the Athenian philosophers, which we have in Acts 17, where he said, you know, after the coming of Jesus and certainly after God's resurrection from the dead, uh, the the age of agnosticism and ignorance has passed. And I'd like to point out that Descartes is operating in the century after the Reformation, and I know it takes longer for things to get around um, back in that day, uh, but all the same, his effort to go back to natural reason after the Bible is being uh, promulgated academically as as well as uh, kind of worldwide or certainly European-wide. Um, this is a decided step back into magisterial or teaching reason in a kind of a, what, after Trent um, effort to put that back on the front burner. Is there anything about Descartes' uh, biography, his kind of personal history, who he was, what his work was, who his family was, that would help us uh, give us kind of flesh out the background of this conversation. Yeah, there there certainly may be, but that's not my forte. So I'm I'm pretty much geared up for talking about the text of these philosophers. I think it it probably is fair. And to respond to your question, it's fair to mention that um, Descartes was trained in the Jesuit schools. So <laughs> if he is talking um, in a new way, I, I think he is not in a better way, but in a new way. Um, he's actually very decidedly and very consciously rejecting the way he had been brought up with Aristotle and probably Thomas Aquinas and so forth in favor of applying the new science to the project of understanding God. And as I said, I think that's a decided step backwards from the Lutheran Reformation. Now, he says, and I'll, I'll give a little quote from the beginning of the meditations, which I think kind of sets up what his program is going to be. 
Um, he's, he quotes Romans chapter 1 and the book of Wisdom chapter 13 uh, to, in support of natural knowledge. That's where Paul says that um, those who do not know God are without excuse because the things of God can be known from, from nature. And then he goes on to make this conclusion. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, that is, in natural things. We seem to be admonished that all which can be known of God may be made manifest by reasons obtained from no other source than the inspection of our own minds. So that, so that Descartes will begin by, um, by assuming that, well, I, I'm not, but not by assuming. He'll begin by doubting the existence of everything. He, he's going to, in some ways, kind of, uh, launch a nuclear weapon at every preconceived notion that he has before, and he's going to try try to eliminate from his thinking everything that is that does not exist outside his own his own mind and his own thinking. Is that a good way of of setting up what he's after? I think it is. I I hope I'm not slowing up your development, but I I don't think that we should give um, Descartes a pass on that handling of Romans 1. I <laughs> know that's right. I think right. you're right about that. Yeah. So um, maybe it's it's worthwhile. We're just leaving the, your biographical question and we're talking about his text. I think maybe it's fair to say that, of course, this is the same Descartes who gave us Cartesian points and the Cartesian grid. He's a major figure in geometry and algebra and calculus and math. Uh, but that's part of the problem, I think. So he seems to be very interested to bring the project of knowledge within the ambit of his mathematical understanding and genius. And I think that's a liability. But on on the matter of Romans 1, um, I think we'd both like to say that, of course, the Apostle Paul is right and verbally inspired in everything that he's saying, but it doesn't follow from that that a quick mention of his words has him right. So... <laughs> Um, Paul is, I think, rather clearly saying that we are without excuse for not knowing certain things about God, his existence and eternal nature from nature with a capital N. But it doesn't follow from that that we do know that. So you can be culpable without being capable. Um, And since the fall, I I would take it that that's actually um, what Paul is saying um, it's also the case that Descartes is assuming a very convenient notion of natural law, and then he's doing something more or less with that. So his assumption for natural law has something to do with innate understanding. Um, I know that we could have a very worthwhile discussion, or um, I could benefit from you having a worthwhile discussion with some of of our pastors who have been writing on natural law, but I would take it uh, just for quick, that natural law does not consist in innate ideas in the first place, that rather it's a certain fittedness for God's word. So when we hear Luther talking about the difference between members in the congregation and a donkey staring at a barnyard door, <laughs> right? He's Luther in his homespun way and an utterly unforgettable way is saying that the human beings, when presented with God's word, are going to have this stuff light up that we we realize we're guilty for not doing and we should have known, but we didn't want to know it, you know, until God got to work on us. And then 
the final wrinkle in Descartes, which um, I think is worth uh, some conversation in terms of his his text too, is what I would say is the fatal and unwarranted move to locate everything inside an individual's mind to start with. So Paul never talks that way. I mean, obviously in Romans 1, this is a public conversation. The, the apostle is talking to the saints in Rome, writing to them um, in, in God's own outbreathed words. But it's meant for people to be talking about and to be considering together. Um, Rene Descartes introduces a kind of solitary confinement philosophy that, as far as I know, may work perfectly well for mathematical geniuses, but does not well serve the pursuit of wisdom. I think that's, I mean, Paul in both Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 uh, points to the what we can know about God through nature, but it's not through the mind or through reason. I mean, in chapter 1, it's through the things that were created. So there's a, an, an incredible amount of assumptions there that Descartes wants to destroy. I mean, that there's the stuff outside of me. And in chapter 2, it's the testimony of the conscience, which is always uh, an indication of how it is that I'm interacting with the world outside of me. So this this kind of, like you said, putting the mind in solitary confinement and saying, now see if you can break out, uh, is really in some ways a, a kind of despairing premise to start with. Well, that's right. And, you know, in the first case, as we're agreeing, that really does not suit the biblical text. And um, I would also like to say it really does not suit the project of philosophy, of seeking to befriend wisdom. Uh, it's it's actually problematic as to whether this is any sort of a human endeavor. If you cut yourself off methodologically, say, or even uh, in real time, cut yourself off from all other people, Aristotle warned quite some time ago that if you think you can exist that way on your own, um, you're either a brute animal or you're a Greek god, but you're certainly not a human being. <laughs> it, it reminds me, uh, as I was reading through uh, Descartes' meditation, of this kind of trick that we used to play when we were in high school. Uh, someone found this quote from Confucius. It was probably made up. Uh, but this question, am I, am I a man dreaming I'm a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming I'm a man dreaming I'm a butterfly? Uh, and to and to try to the, the whole purpose of that was to disconnect yourself. Uh, well, there, I suppose there was a twofold purpose. It was to disconnect yourself uh, in your imagination from the vocation, the place that God has placed you. And the second was to try to sound really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, yes. That, well, <laughs> that, that, so that's Descartes' idea of um, how do I know if the internal experience of my own mind and thought has any sort of connection with what is outside of it? Well, uh, sorry, that's already. I'm taking a couple steps forward. His first thing is to notice that he, in fact, does have thoughts, and then to kind of roll around what that possibly means, and that's where he comes out with his particularly famous "I think, therefore I am." Um, that I must be a thinking thing. And then he has this, again, kind of counsel of despair, trying to figure out if his own thoughts, if there's any way to connect the experience of his mind with anything outside of himself. Well, right. So how about if um, we follow your lead and, and introduce a paragraph or two of text? So 
This is the opening of Meditation One. Descartes is speaking, and as a matter of fact, we know from reading on that he's all by himself in his residence, um, in his pajamas with a uh, burning candle there, uh, very much of a Lone Ranger approach. And here's what, here's what he's writing down. Several years have now elapsed since I first became aware that I had accepted, even from my youth, many false opinions for true. And that consequently, what I afterward based on such principles was highly doubtful. And from that time, I was convinced of the necessity of undertaking once in my life to rid myself of all the opinions I had adopted and of commencing anew the work of building from the foundation. If I desired to establish a firm and abiding superstructure in the sciences. But as this enterprise appeared to me one of great magnitude, I waited until I had attained an age so mature as to leave me no hope that at any stage of life more advanced I should be better able to execute my design. On this account, I have delayed so long that I should henceforth consider I was doing wrong were I still to consume in deliberation any of the time that now remains for action. Today then, since I have opportunely freed myself from all cares and am happily disturbed by no passions, he means no emotions, and since I am in the secure possession of leisure in a peaceable retirement, he just means retiring for the night, I will at length apply myself earnestly and freely to the general overthrow of all my former opinions. So um, this is a very brave undertaking in the 20th century. Um, a lesser-known but very important philosopher by the name of Edmund Husserl said every serious thinker must, at least once in his or her life, conduct Descartes' experiment and doubt yourself all the way down to the foundation, get rid of all those things you can't be sure of, and then rebuild everything on the basis of certainty. But here's the thing. Uh, the first move gets the first double question mark. Is it actually the case that if you have ever been fooled in something that you thought or held to be true, that that means you have to doubt everything down to the foundation. And I think the answer for that is it's true in math and it's true in geometry, but it's not true in real life. Um, so we've got his mathematical drive, maybe obsession for precision, which may or may not be healthy in math for all I know, but he's <laughs> applying that willy-nilly to the process of philosophy. And then if I could just quickly rehearse what happens right after this. Sure. Um, Descartes basically says that he has uh, found that he cannot always rely on the written authorities that he grew up reading in school and so forth, including Aristotle. Um, so he shouldn't trust written authorities at all, he says. He's found out that he can't trust the evidence of his own senses because sometimes the senses have been mistaken and I guess we've all experienced optical or oral illusions so we understand the first part of that then he says I can't even tell for sure this is back to your high school Confucian confusion um, <laughs> I can't tell for sure whether I'm awake or asleep so I can't be sure about consciousness and then he says and since I'm on a roll, I might as well doubt whether God is, as I assume him to be, good or not. Now, out of all of this, Descartes finds that there's absolutely nothing that he can rely on with mathematical certainty. Therefore, he thinks there's nothing he can rely on except it dawns on him 
that at each step of the way he has said, I doubt, I doubt, I doubt, I doubt. So he concludes in a kind of dubito ergo sum, as you suggested before, uh, since there is an I doubting, um, that's the basis I start with the um, inevitably, unavoidably existing I, which he considers to be uh, fundamentally a mental um, individual. And then it's only later that he returns to all of this by trying to rebuild things. And then here's the problem he faces. If you're trying to rebuild things on some sort of mathematically obsessed notion of total precision and absolute accuracy, um, the difficulty is how do you get from this furniture of your mind, these ideas of yourself and whatever that you may have, back out to the real or the extramental world? And Descartes has committed himself to this solitary confinement way of doing philosophy in his own mind. So he hypothesizes or or just plain assumes that ideas are fundamentally critters in your mind and he starts sorting out those ideas and among those ideas he finds two perfect ideas the idea of triangles and the idea of god and and with oh, uh, you know with a uh, i i would assume kind of a a sincerely meant humility he says well since I'm an imperfect being, um, these are two amazing bits of data. Because a triangle, well, that's an eternal idea. Uh, it, it never changes. And, and it could not have come from me. It's, it's perfect. And furthermore, the idea of God, you know, this all-powerful, all-knowing entity could never have been generated by a flawed, faulty imperfect being like myself. So on the basis of the kind of old medieval conviction that uh, the cause must be better than the effect, he concludes that God is not an evil deceiver after all on the basis of the idea of God and that if you can have two ideas like that that demand outside sources, outside our imperfect being, he can build a bridge of the idea of triangle and the idea of God back into the real extra mental world out there. This is, uh, this is what he says about, and here's where we get the introduction of the idea of his, of his evil demon. Um, and this is, I think, right at the end of the second meditation, if I, if I understand the notes right, or. It's um, the end of the, yeah, end of the first. End, okay, right at the end of the first meditation, uh, he writes, I suppose then, not that deity, who is sovereignly good and the fountain of truth, but that some malignant demon, some evil demon, who is at once exceedingly potent and deceitful, has employed all his artifice to deceive me. I will suppose that the sky, the air, the earth, colors, figures, sounds, and all external things are nothing better than the illusions of dreams, by means of which this being has laid snares for my credulity. I will consider myself as without hands, eyes, flesh, blood, or any of the senses, and as falsely believing that I am possessed of these, I will continue resolutely fixed in this belief, and if indeed by this means it be not in my power to arrive at the knowledge of truth, I shall at least do what is in my power visibly, suspend my judgment, and guard with settled purpose against giving my assent to what is false, 
and being imposed upon this opposed by being opposed imposed upon by this deceiver, whatever be his power and artifice. So he says that it. it I want to imagine at least the possibility that everything that I'm experiencing is a delusion foisted upon me by some sort of evil or a deceitful demon or a god-like figure, some sort of wicked deity. And I have to assume for... I'm, this is part of his prison that he's putting himself in to break out of. It could be that everything I see is a complete delusion. Well, yes, and you know what we learned from that, right? What's that? That, that Descartes uh, never saw a couple episodes of The Twilight Zone... <laughs> Or the outer limits. <laughs> so, um, in in all serious though seriousness though, what what we're actually seeing is a kind of um, not very good fiction being substituted for philosophical thought. So, let me work back into this. Um, we're almost expected today in our uh, university classrooms to conduct learning by means of case studies wherever possible. As far as I can figure out, that contemporary notion of case studies is a little less than a century old and actually traces back to one or two of the Ivy League schools um, who needed a way to set up scenarios by which their um, business students and so forth could weigh out what was right to do and what was wrong to do. In the area of apologetics, I wish I could remember which author pointed this out uh, properly to credit him. But in the area of apologetics, I once read a presentation of a case study that began this way. Um, Suppose that it was to be reported in the news today that an archaeological team in the Promised Land had positively identified the tomb in which Jesus was buried. And there they located remains of his skeleton, which have been positively identified by DNA evidence as having been those of Jesus of Nazareth, what would that do to your faith? Now, the the question invites a person to play this case study game, but actually, I would say that the the logical, the philosophical, the thoughtful and intelligent response to that would be, well, I tell you what, if it really turns out that there's an archaeological team that finds the skeleton of Jesus and identifies it without a shadow of a doubt as being his, then you can ask me that question again. <laughs> right. Right. So what, what Descartes is doing is actually playing around with the idea of God. On the one hand, it sounds like in his writing he's been pious enough to have mentioned God is all good and so forth. So we know he's talking about the God of the Bible. But on the other hand, he has reduced him to an idea in his mind and not a very interesting idea at that. And then has, for the sake of a 17th century case study, has invited us in to consider what it would mean if God was actually an evil, deceiving demon. Now, I'm not sure that this would be very good fiction, but I'm fairly sure that this is really not good philosophy. This is not the way really to think any more than, by the way, the notion that ideas start and primarily live inside the individual's mind is a good way to do philosophy. 
Is there is there a name for that? The, I mean, we've we've talked about the magisterial use of reason. That reason is king, and everything now is subject to the king of reason. Is there um, uh, do, do we have a name for that epistemologically or um? Well, chances are that someone somewhere has coined one and wanted that to be published from his or her philosophy paper. Um, <laughs> I don't know, and I I realize I'm kind of treading on the edge right here of not not taking Descartes seriously in my haste to criticize him philosophically and theologically. But um, I, I would just say that our our uncritical acceptance of his epistemological or knowledge procedures is actually a symptom, and our easy acceptance of this is a symptom of, of what I do call the Cartesian hangover. <laughs> Explain that. Well, you know, it's it's um it seems perfectly natural to most of us today in you know hoity-toity graduate courses or or thoughtful professional discussions like ours or in uh, classrooms where I get to work with these uh, um, bright, energetic young people all the time. It seems kind of natural to us just to say, "Yeah, think about it that way." Um, uh, why not? Um, what, what do we learn from this? My pastor never talked this way. Maybe I should take a look at this. Um, but a person has to keep his or her wits about them. So I refer to it as the hangover because um, there is some kind of a, a multifactored loosening of rationality that's starting at the beginning of the modern period or starting to become obvious that only is really bearing fruit in the 20th and now the 21st century. So, it, you know, I, I think a lot of people had assumed that you could be rational without the God of the Bible. Um, I take that to be the Enlightenment Project. We may talk about that in a later interview. But um, I think what you ultimately find out is that in Western culture, at least, we find that the biblical content is so intimately interwoven with the Greek ways of thinking that constitute Western culture that when you pull the God of the Bible out, um, you're also sacrificing reasoned, rational, life-affirming, ethical conversation. I think we lose rationality as the next phase to losing God. I think that uh, this is... I've, by the way, been recently criticized a couple of times for this because I've been... I've taken up the task of arguing, for example, against abortion or something like this from natural law, uh, assuming that you can agree um, on some of these basic fundamental things apart from any sort of theology at all. And, um, and, and it seems like while you might be able to imagine the possibility, you just don't see it in reality. I mean, we, when you go to the March for Life, it is Christians who are there. There is some f- f- profoundly fundamental connection between the idea that God is and is the creator with um, with the fact that we can think reasonably about the, that the world is in fact ordered enough for us to start to get our minds around it. Yes, right. And, and it's, well, it's not the case that we're living in the centuries before the fullness of time either. So... There is um, sort of an inevitable, uh, an inevitable erosion to everything important if, after the fullness of time, after 
um, the beginning of the incarnation, after Jesus' ministry, after his crucifixion for us, and after the empirically verified eyewitnessed resurrection stuff, um, the rejection of that is is going to come hand in glove with <laughs> what my pastor called in his sermon yesterday, stinking thinking, um, <laughs> where it's just not good thinking at all because you're just all consumed with worldly things and and you you can't think outside your head and so inside your head isn't a pleasant place to be either it seems like uh, a couple of ideas for, or thoughts that I want to run by you what we've talked about so far uh, the Bible often talks about the idea that the, that you become like the God that you worship so the the, the idols of the nations uh, you know that David will say in the Psalms idols are um, mute and they are blind and they are um, dead and the people who worship them become like them so that the thing that you set up as God will almost become definitional for your how you understand yourself, etc. It seems like with Descartes, then the the move to make reason um, the only thing that can be sure, um, the 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 kind of mathematical precision that can that can that can occur in my own mind. The result is that God becomes in his thinking. Not a person or three persons, but rather, uh, as you mentioned before, an idea. The idea of the eternal. The idea of the omnipotent. Uh, God becomes then not a person who is interacting with me, but rather an abstraction to be either um, known or unknown, to be thought of in some sort of ways. Uh, does that fit with uh, your thinking about this? It does. I would, I would like to... Um kind of reserve the right to say, though, that just because somebody is doing very good, solid mathematical and geometric thinking, and even though somebody may be doing rather good, what we would call today natural science thinking, it doesn't follow that anything not done in that way is not thinking. So um, what's reasonable when you're doing Euclidean geometry is one thing, but what's reasonable when we're talking about the full human experience of our humanity in God's creation, um, the the scientific method is is not adequate for that. And, and it's, that's that's a that's a, pr- a problem that um, Descartes brought to light for those with ears to hear. I think. Well, uh, well talk about this too. It seems like that. Um that in our thinking with, for example, with Aquinas, the beginning was God. With Descartes now, the beginning is, uh, as you kind of started this out, the beginning is the word I. That, that, that there is something that exists that is myself or my capacity to doubt or whatever it is, that, that I'm taking myself as the starting point rather than God as the starting point or even creation as the starting point. Um, that itself is going to really affect the character, I think, of modern thinking. The centrality of the self um, in the perception of the world and everything else. Well, yes. So for a, a, a brief literary heads up, I think we're seeing two entirely different worldviews before 1600 and now with Descartes after 1600. So, you know, prior to 1600, I suppose that um, Dante's Divine Comedy, right, with the the view of hell and purgatory and heaven, 
and its symmetry and then its ultimate uh, centeredness with God at the middle of everything in terms of importance and reality and and sustenance, the beatific vision, um, that's given way to what John Donne described in, in one of his sonnets about the same time as Descartes' life, everything hath been flung to its atomies, each hath got to be a phoenix, right? So it, it's not... Um, Hmm. It's not an ordered world, and it's not um, not rationality that that the person who denies God is actually using to look at the world. And this this is, of course, some pretty serious stuff. Yeah, that's um, th- this is the, it. Seems to be the um, kind of the major worldview division that uh, assaults us today. Um, is this, this simple question: Is the world an ordered place? And it seems like the project of modernity has been to kind of fill in the how we got here without any sort of ordering. Um, so that you have, I, I mean, evolution, for example, is giving us the order of violence, not the order of peace, if, if violence can even be considered an order. Um, but your, your statement here is that, that this breakdown, I don't know if it's begun with Descartes or if it's if Descartes is giving us the language of the beginning of this breakdown. Descartes is at least an early symptom. I I don't like the thought of of blaming a single thinker for things, though, you know, he's always going to be accountable for his own writing and his own speaking, but especially the written text, that's right. But, you know, those of us after people like Descartes um, bear some responsibility for whether we um, can can recognize what's what's unhealthy and wrong and dishonest about a person's methodology, or you know we just go along like lemmings and adopt it as our own without bothering to pause and think about it. It's a convenient thing to have um, God reduced to an idea, but right. Yeah, but it's it's. I, I'm here to say that's also nonsensical. Hmm. Yeah, that's. So, so I, I want to expo- maybe explore that a little bit because well, so an, the idea of God cannot judge you on the last day. The, uh, neither can the idea of God hear your prayers, um, or send his son to die for you. I suppose. I mean, the idea of God is a it's a reduction. Uh, God is no longer can judge. God can, in some ways. I mean, he is. There's um, there's he's two steps removed as long as he is an idea. Um, but but it would seem like to make God an idea w- would be, I I forgot the word that you just used. The, uh, having God as an idea would in fact be, a sensical, but you say that it's it, it it's a re- it's a step away from that. It's a nonsensical move to to reduce God to an idea. What, um, why? Well, let's see. First of all, um, it's a nonsensical notion to act as if we are not located as creatures within creation as the first step. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Got it. Uh, this this was highlighted in 20th century thought um, by the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. So Heidegger said. Uh, I paraphrase heavily, that um, actually we find ourselves not as thinking things and so forth, but we find ourselves being in the world. 
And in English, his expression gets hyphenated. So you realize that that's one realization. We exist in the world. An interesting question is, how do we know that? And another related question is, do we strictly speaking know that? Or is that delivered somehow in an irrefragable or um, undeletable way? And I think that that um, what Heidegger pointed out and is kind of seeping around the edges of Descartes' um, writing in Meditations is that it's not fundamentally a cognitive relation to the world that situates us in the first place. So, you know, in other words, we're not sitting around being thinking beings and then we either do or don't think our way back to the world or out to the world or to the world if it exists. But it's rather the case that we are situated through the emotional aspect of our being. So first, we feel our being in the world. Now, we've since Descartes acquired the understanding and the terminology and philosophy to address both the cognition, thinking, and the emotion, the feeling, concerning being in the world. And in both cases, I think the key word is intentionality. So when when we think, when we reason, we are always reasoning about something. Descartes misidentified the public domain of ideas and concepts and language with these, whatever they are, in his own mind for the purposes of his philosophy. But actually, this is all out there in language. So the other way that we experience intentionality is through emotions. We never are just sitting there in neutral without the clutch engaged, just loving or hating, but we always love someone or something or hate someone. So the emotional connection with the world is our mood. And we find ourselves in the world before we start really to think about it, either in a joyful mood or in an angst-ridden mood, but you really can't get away from it. So it's kind of interesting, I think, that Descartes is so dismissive of the emotions in order to maintain his cognitive solitariness and doubt. Um, what he what he says he doubts. Uh, it's kind of interesting that doubt is an emotion too, and not a not a cognition. But what he says he doubts. Um, he's doubting on intellectual grounds, but can he really get away from the intentional feeling that he is situated in in extramental reality? I don't think so. So, you know, you keep on on putting that together, and that's why I'm saying that Descartes is not simply doing questionable theological stuff. He's not really doing theological stuff to speak of, but he's doing um, very questionable philosophical stuff by imposing his 17th century scientific method on the project of philosophy and being human. It, it doesn't belong there. That kind of science is not adequate to it. And we see that today in the way that when we decide the only kind of knowledge that's really going to count for public discussion or for policymaking or whatever is, quote, scientific knowledge, uh, what that manages to leave out is always being human, uh, right? It reduces us to things that science can handle metrically, and that's it. This is um, oh, this is amazing. So that 
I mean, it's not only God that's reduced to an idea, but it, it's really the human that is reduced to a thought or or the act of thinking. There's um there's a reductionistic move which results in this kind of materialistic scientism that we that we feel today. Something something has to be measured or it cannot factor into our our thinking at all. Um, that was the question I was going to ask, and so maybe to expound on it a little bit, you said that the, the seeds that Descartes is planting are now in modernity. Uh, the fruit has sprouted and is and is ready to be picked, um, and so that would be one of the fruits of Descartes' thinking. The kind of um, how you said it, that only those things which are um, demonstrated scientifically can be entered into the public discourse. Um, it, it was, you, you want to pluck some more fruit from the tree of Descartes here? <laughs> there really is not a lot there. That's <laughs> that's that's part of my point, and i i don't I don't dismiss his mathematical expertise, and I understand the power of the scientific method, um, for which he's in on the ground floor from our perspective, but it's the the methodism of Descartes in imposing all of that on our project of seeking wisdom and asking how to live and asking how we can be right with God, the imposition of that method on the entire human project um, that is killing us. It seems like before Descartes, um, from what I can tell, there was a there was a virtue in faith and believing. It's now with Descartes, the virtue is, is flipped on its head and the virtue is doubt. The virtue is um, is unbelief. The virtue is to question rather than to trust, um, and that that is a, a dangerous position, uh, especially as the Lord has put us on the earth to be the receiver, the recipients of His gifts, not the rejectors of His gifts. Uh, that Descartes uh, puts us in a posture of rejecting uh, the, all the good things that God has to give to us, and with, with reason and and also with our bodies, with the external world, uh, with our emotions, and with the fullness. Of um, of our humanity, uh, uh, Descartes would cut us off from those things. Well, he does, and and lesser lights after him, and even greater lights after him, have maintained this fundamental posture and this um, Methodist imposition of the scientific method on all of our thinking. So that even today, um, we find voices in the church that are looking to apply the social sciences or scientific methods to assessing our effectiveness in ministry, right? <laughs> to yes. something that, oh, that in yes. principle can't be metricized. Um, and and then um, we just find all sorts of difficulties. So I was thinking back to a comment you made before, and I um, wanted to offer the thought um, that came from a, a little gem of a book from the 1970s by E.F. Shoemaker. The title of Shoemaker's book is um, a guide for the perplexed, and it's a wonderfully substantial yet brief and conversational introduction to areas of philosophy. In that book, E.F. Shoemaker describes Descartes as as a man with a mind that was immensely powerful and also dreadfully narrow. And then, <laughs> then he added, uh, not in exactly the same discussion, but a development of the narrative that a world which has abandoned the God of the Bible can't help 
but resemble a world that has never had the God of the Bible. Um, and, and so there, you know, ideas have consequences. And the ironic thing here is that Descartes is actually misrepresenting the notion of idea in order to pull off this reductivistic move. Folks first reading meditations, uh, this theology faculty that, that had the writings dedicated to it, uh, instead of entering into a kind of case study philosophy done according to Cartesian parameters should have been reading and using their Bibles, um, or at least reading and using the medieval thinkers who contemplated reason and faith um, in, in order to do a better job of thinking this through. It occurs to me that um, <laughs> that Descartes is playing a game. I mean, he's going to lock himself up in the jail of his mind and, and see if he can escape. But that there's something uh, greater at stake, and that is we are in bondage to sin and death in a prison that we cannot break out of, and it is Christ who comes to break us out of that. And when we're busy playing this kind of mental game, reducing the task of philosophy to a, a, a scientific, um, as you say, manipulation of nature, we miss the real, uh, the reality of what God and Christ is doing, uh, namely dying for us and forgiving us for all of our sins. Yes, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Schultz, for this conversation. Fantastic. Um, to look at Descartes now, it seems like uh, what's coming next is the continued crumbling of thought uh, that starts here at Descartes. Is that true? We're going to look at Berkeley's table. Um, you want to set the table for the next conversation? Uh, set the table for Berkeley's table. Did you just say that? <laughs> I, well, I, sure. Accidentally, yes, I yeah. did say that. So, sure. Um, Berkeley, though, is going to be a breath of fresh air in the middle of this. So, um, Berkeley, in the middle of um, empiricism as done by Locke, something uh, we've also kind of inherited down the line, is actually going to take God, the God of the Bible, very seriously as a necessary component for his understanding of knowledge and metaphysics. Good. So we'll get a, we'll get a uh, taste of that uh, in our next conversation. Uh, I always appreciate this. It's... Um, uh, it is a, again, always a stretch for me, uh, but I'm glad to be stretched and I'm glad to have you teaching along. We've got a lot of positive feedback, so if people want, oh, in fact, all the stuff that, uh, uh the t stuff to read, um, for Descartes and your introduction, your critique of it, and also some other articles we'll post up on whatdoesthismean.org along with this conversation. Uh, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. We've got a lot, in fact. I don't know if you've heard some feedback, but I've got a lot of positive feedback uh, that we're uh, taking this journey through these metaphors together. And so thank you, uh, Dr. Schultz, for this again. Well, thank you, Brother Wolf Miller. It's just a joy, Brian. God is not an idea. He is a person. In fact, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, he uh, and the Father sends the person of the Son for you. We cannot miss that, get lost in our ideas and miss the reality that Jesus has an empty grave and that that same Jesus will empty your grave on the last day. Uh, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller uh, with Dr. Schulz talking about the Master Metaphors of Philosophy. Uh, tune in again next week. Thank you. All right. We did it. Yes, we did. <laughs> 
It seems to me like, by the way, this is my master metaphor for these conversations. It's like I'm walking on a tightrope and the rope keeps getting thinner and thinner. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I have less and less any idea what these guys are talking about. I, I, I take some comfort in that. I, I mean, it's half my own ignorance, but I think it's half that I read the Bible. And so it's such a different way of looking at the world that um, at least that's what I keep comforting myself with. Well, I yeah, I think so too. There, are, you know, there are a couple of phases with these philosophers. I think one important thing that I was in danger of transgressing today is you do have to take their texts seriously. Um, but the other thing is that taking their texts seriously means engaging with what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that, you know, we just didn't get any opportunities um, either way to handle that in our, for the most part, in our college or certainly our seminary training. And uh, I, I think it just makes us pray for all sorts of bad thinking being foisted on us by Reformed people who still can't figure out what the church is for. I, You know, this, I, and I'm sorry, I'm, I had that written down as a question, uh, as a point to try to make, and I missed it but that that is the idea that there's not a that our our method is not neutral so right. the, the idea yeah. of of playing the game the mental game of imagine there our thoughts are implanted by an evil demon that is not uh neutral and and so our philosophical method must be done with humility lest it be, be kind of dangerously enter us into the spiritual world yeah, I think I think actually um, I've started to express to students we do have to do some case studies in our bioethics classes because you can't really get away from them in the books and people doing graduate work in bioethics are going to face it. But I always try to offer that the preface of either that apologetic story I mentioned in our interview or something similar to it because – the problem is that this is such a beguiling way of allegedly thinking something through. Um, and it, it's just, you know, it's giving away the farm um, from the get-go. Yes, um, right. You know. That's right. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, God be praised. Thank you for this, as always. So um, I really appreciate I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I've told you this, too, but I very much appreciate our conversations. I'm very, very grateful for them myself. I think, like, I'm, I'm – uh, there's some part of my mind that's starting to bloom as we engage with these sorts of things, and I, I'm, de- I'm delighted in that. So, oh, I value it too, Brian. I I don't think I would have done this with uh, anybody but a a like-minded pastor doing the interviewing. It probably would have fallen flat anyhow. But with this, you know, kind of um, concern for the ministry and and church work and and the Lord's people this way, I I think this is just absolutely the right tone to have and I'm, I'm pretty grateful for the chance to work this through too. Now, you know, with that said um, I, I know that you're somebody with a lot of stuff to do as well as somebody with a lot of of good ideas for this stuff so I think I would sincerely like you to give thought if you can to that question about doing some ethics stuff after this. Um, Issues Etc. asked me to do a, a three or four part interview on logic for believers or something to that effect and i'm looking forward to doing that yes uh, but there's there's just no substitute for the conversations you and i have been able to have here i think good so no thank yeah. you for that i'm i'm uh 
I mean, Todd is great. Uh, he's pulling stuff out, though. You know, I mean, he's um, it's a different it's a different flavor of conversation with him. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's perfect. I will. I put it down here. Schul's interview ethics, uh, the master metaphors of ethics. Four images. Um, I certainly will. I don't know. Maybe we should just start our own podcast. And- Maybe we should. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> you know what else? I had somebody suggest to me that um, <laughs> this is a this is bordering on the perverse, but somebody suggested to me that a way to increase your listenership would be to do like a one nine a dollar ninety nine cost per download. Um, he mentioned that that he's doing this with some stuff with one of the philosophy associations he works with and they get they think more people for whom you know two dollars is is not not unmanageable right they get more people downloading stuff as the result of that that little bit of commitment right uh, which is kind of interesting no that's right it's it's um it's a value proposition it's uh i suppose it's what my dad used to call perceptive pricing Ah. He, he would because he was pricing jewelry and he would price yeah. it for you know he wouldn't use what's our cost times four or whatever he would say um, he would know that when he's pricing things that he's determining the value of a thing in the person's mind uh-huh. so if I'm paying fifty dollars for this then it must be a fifty dollar piece of jewelry yeah versus if I'm paying three hundred dollars it must be a three hundred dollar piece of jewelry so that you are it's not that the price is determined by the value, but that the value is determined by the price. How about that? Yeah. Uh, speaking of values and prices, I wanted to thank you and your folks for sending through the check for the microphone. You're welcome. That's very helpful. Oh yeah, no, I'm, and I hope you were able to use it for everything that you do. That, um, well, I'm I'm looking forward to doing some of that. Um, actually, I think I may be able to use it. Somebody gave me the link for the software, so I can do audio commentaries on essays that are submitted and if i can pull that off that's i think that's going to be more helpful to people so, oh yeah that's great you yeah. can just record you don't have to type it out it'll be twice as fast for you and yep yeah yeah personal and all of that good so, so lenten preaching is going well for you yes uh i t- i didn't pre- i preached sunday i didn't preach two weeks before because we were on vacation and pastor flame was preaching so mm-hmm. i'm back in the saddle so, okay. God, God be praised. It doesn't get too much busier around here during Lent. People think that we're busy, so they don't bother with us with stuff. So, yeah, you got to be sure we're not being recorded on that comment. If that gets out, <laughs> you guys are sunk. I know it. <laughs> I know it. It would help well, the week after Easter rush, though. Yeah. <laughs> when, when everyone says, "Now here's how everything's falling apart, Pastor." I didn't want to tell you during Lent. Oh. <laughs> That's all right. Maybe maybe the Lord will come before that. Yeah, that I hopefully yeah. so. Well, well that, I would love I would love to spend more time talking, but I get the feeling I should let you get on to work and or family there. I better get after it, but I appreciate yep. it too. And we'll talk to you next week. Okay, I'll have some Barclay stuff to you, Lord willing, on Friday, and then we'll have another uh, great time next Monday too.